Welcome back to Ideas Digest, the podcast where we put aside our tribalism and our vilification of those who disagree with us just long enough to understand how someone else might see the world. I'm Conrad, and in this episode, we skim just the surface of one of the central ideas in Buddhism. It's a vast, deep tradition, ancient tradition, so we're just just going to skim the surface. I grew up Christian, and one of the things that I came to discover in my later years, I'm, I'm 30 or so, so I'm getting on, so in my later years, I discovered that I thought I knew what other religions believed, but in actual fact, everything I thought they believed, I had misinterpreted or oversimplified to the point that I really wasn't even close to understanding what they really believed or how they saw the world. But in my defense, the major different religions exist within very different cultural contexts. And, and obviously, I didn't have exposure to these growing up. So, of course, when I applied my Western Christian cultural lens to some of their ideas, they didn't quite make sense. So it is hard to get an accurate reading of what some of these different religions mean when we're coming at it from a very different world and a very different worldview. So... In this episode, I sat down with a man named Siladasa in the Melbourne Buddhist Centre and asked him, what is one idea that he has come to accept that has changed his life for the better? Big question, and he answers it quite well. As we were speaking, I actually found so many similarities between his Buddhist ideas and many of the Christian ones that shaped me. The concept and ideas we talk about at the start begins very abstract, but I really tried to keep using practical examples to see how this idea would play out in my everyday life and the everyday life of the average Australian. So take a listen and tell me what you think. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back to Ideas Digest with me, Conrad, and I'm with Cam. Evening. Yeah, yeah, it is a lovely Sunday evening, and we're sitting in the Melbourne Buddhist Center with a gentleman who's originally from Adelaide named Siladasa. Siladasa, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. What we want to do, as you might have gathered on Ideas Digest, is find new ideas that we may not have come across and see how those new ideas will impact how we see the world. Could we see the world differently? How do other people see the world? The goal is to hear an idea. We don't have to agree or disagree, but we can see how that idea might impact the way someone else sees the world. So, Siladasa, before we get to know you a little bit more, can you package and clickbait an idea that's been central to how you see the world? I think the principle of conditional arising. This is the principle that all things and all phenomena arise dependent upon conditions. Unpack the word conditions for me. Conditions as in like external conditions. And internal conditions. Any conditions. That we have control of. Determine your experience and the world. And they're the ones that we don't have control of or the ones we do have control of. Well, there are both. Everything. There's no control of. There's say like gravity, the weather, the wind. So they're physical conditions. Mm -hmm. But there might be 
physical conditions of your body that you can control, the way you sit, the way you mm -hmm. speak, the way you turn your eyes and your thoughts. What does this principle change for you? Living by this principle, is that what you would say you do? Yes, and it also helps explain the world and both the internal world, my own mind and thoughts and experiences, and also other people have their experiences which are determined by their own unique set of conditions which revolve over time and are present at all times. So I'm trying to I'm trying to see package it into a clickbaity kind of title, and here's what I'm coming up with: Silla Dasa can explain the world. Let's go for it. <laughs> I don't know. Have you got another one? I like it. Is that pretty? I feel like the meaning of life is found in the Melbourne Buddhist Centre, we, or we found the meaning of life. <laughs> That's pretty clickbaity. Well, from a Buddhist perspective, that is true. Okay, all it's right. It's the philosophical basis of the tradition. Now, before we unpack that, tell us a little bit about your life so far. You grew up in Adelaide. I did. I was schooled there. And about the age of 14, I had this existential crisis, if you like. It That's wasn't young to be having an existential crisis. Is young. <laughs> I Fortunately, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> I teach 14-year-olds at school and there's no existential crisis happening. That's right. Okay, yeah. Well, it was. I just looked around the schoolyard and the school routines and I looked around domestic life and I thought there must be more to life than this. This wow. is just not enough. Is there anything that triggered it no particular trauma or anything like that at you, all you just kind of it woke up one day woke and up one day and think this is really not enough and and when you say this life as a school 14 year old schoolboy in a western suburb of adelaide you you presumed there was more i had some intuition there must be more there must be more and then you went on searching that. i went I went on a search and i began with reading some very basic psychology as a 14 year old could because i i thought well, all my experiences, perceptions and thinking are all to do with the mind. So maybe I need to learn about the mind. So I went to Western psychology, read some basic Freud, Jung, Adler, mm. and these, these, these things. I'm only familiar with them by name. Right. <laughs> I can't say I've read too much of them, yeah, that's but I know who okay. you're talking about. But, uh, but I think even just that basic concept of the conscious and the unconscious that, that Freud had come up with, which is revolutionary in his time, the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries, and had a profound effect on uh, Western thought and art and music and everything, this was actually very important to think about the unconscious. The, the unconscious being the things that we are unaware of that are driving our behavior. Exactly right. And they might also be the stuff of dreams, of nightmares, of visions, of fears, of aspirations. So that would be not only our own actions but also the actions of others exactly that right. affect you as well exactly right so there are other conditions external conditions oh we're, we're into us. it already yes <laughs> external conditions you came across this principle but not packaged as external conditions quite young no no that, not that principle i was searching at the time yeah. but um, the next key was a friend of mine was doing the same thing and his brother was reading these books by this writer called lobsang ramper we're talking about the uh, 60s here and Lobsang Rampa turned out to be a plumber from the Midlands of England, writing under a pen name. And he's writing these, these adventure books about Tibetan Buddhist monks and doing all these sorts of amazing things. And when my friends described to me these Tibetan Buddhist monks sitting cross-legged in the snow meditating and, and realizing the universe, that just switched the light on in my brain. 
I've got to meditate. That is the way I'll know myself. It was just an intuitive response. And, and so then where did your journey take you? Then I started to read about meditation and that took me to Autobiography of a Yogi, reading some of the Eastern mystics like Krishnamurti. They're Hindu. Hindu, yeah, Hindu-based. Hindu yeah. But uh, the more I read about the Buddha and his life, the more I became deeply impressed and I, was, I gravitated towards the Buddha and his Noble Eightfold Path. Was there any other spiritual or religious background that you had come from? No, I had a very weak Protestant exposure, Sunday school and religious instruction at school, which uh, I don't think was presented all that well uh, to be respectful to the tradition. What was your general impression from that upbringing? What, what was the message you received? The message I was receiving that I had to believe these stories to be saved. And it just did not synchronize with, with my thinking. That's and, often and my, still going. Yeah. <laughs> That's very prevalent. And I, and I thought, I, I, need, I, need a, I need an experience to really convince me. And I wasn't getting that experience from Sunday school or from church. You ended up going, for studying what? And what, what do you That's do with right. yourself now? So my, my education uh, took me to medicine. And I studied that at uh, the University of Adelaide and graduated there. And then trained in internal medicine and then decided on neurology, which is disorders of the brain and nervous system, as the subspecialty. And uh, that took me to about my 29th year, uh, which is when I went to London to complete my specialty training at a, a specialist centre there. What was your family background and upbringing? You said mentioned Protestant. Was it, uh, Yes, they were really quite ordinary middle-class Australians. and Dad Many was siblings? In, no, just the one, one older sister. And uh, she left in, in her teens to go to Sydney to find her fortune and her fame. And that left me with my mum and dad. Their relationship didn't go well in my teens. And so that went the way of all things. What did they do for work? Uh, dad was in the building industry, both uh, as a tradesman and also as a, as a salesman in mm -hmm. building goods. V very traditional Christian or Protestant? Or not just really. Not really. Bit. I'd say, you know, like they were more of a typical Australian family. Meat and three veg, barbecues, you know, keg of beer for the 21st. It was, you know, Falcon or Valiant in the driveway. Yeah, it was pretty standard. <laughs> right up until 14, it's like, what is the meaning of life? Honestly, if I had a kid in my class that was teaching that said that, I'd be like, oh, mate, good on you. I'm just, sorry, 14-year-olds, but that's not my experience with you. So outlier right here. Tell me about this idea and, and, trying to, and, and just explain it to me. Yes. The Buddha's principal insight at the awakening or the, or the enlightenment was that all things and all phenomena arise dependent upon conditions. And this deep, profound insight and experience caused him to be liberated from all the usual conditions which condition our mind. And that is what we call enlightenment or Buddha mind. Define enlightenment for me. Enlightenment, not easy, because it's more of an experience than okay. something subject to yep. definition. Mm -hmm. You know, because often we use those words like epiphany and yes. insight. So enlightenment is this awakening to the truth of things, that all phenomena we see and experience are dependent upon conditions. That would be the principal ones. And one manifestation of that, would, which would be the law of karma, that uh, suffering depends upon unskillful states of mind and emotions, and joy depends on skillful states of mind and emotions just repeat that phrase suffering depends upon unskillful mental states and emotions so is it fair to say that the way that this tradition is looking at the mind is it it's something that needs to be trained 
Exactly. And practiced. Exactly. And, and by contrast, you might say that the Western mind, given our education, is generally never trained. Or is it trained in different ways? Yes, well, I think there is some training in certain areas, but not in this sense of looking at the effects of our mental states and emotions. Looking upon ourselves, how we are feeling, how we're... So the introspection, yes. training the mind. So a skilled mind would be a mind that can assess introspection observing your own maybe feelings imp- emotions and thoughts and with understanding of their consequences starting to decide am i okay with those feelings and thoughts or would i like to transform them let's for instance if one felt ill will towards somebody and you start to burn up you start to make stories you start to lay blame you start to gossip amongst others how evil and bad this person is that is not good for me if I was under that state and saying all those things because I'm agitated and I'm upset and I'm focused and of course getting probably a long way from the truth. No one's often quite that evil, yeah? And that person who's receiving that ill will or that my barrage of insults or disparagement, they're not feeling good, they're suffering. And then of course the people who might be around and witnessing this exchange or this communication or this ill will, they might feel bad as well. There is suffering. So it sounds like the skilled mind is the training of including other inputs, the inputs of how is the other person feeling, what, what is the observer seeing, what am I experiencing myself, what are those impacts for myself. It's almost taking other inputs and learning to include them into a state which is generally very self, like when you're very in a heightened emotional state, if you're angry or upset, you know, it's quite fair to say that, well, for me, I would be very just like, it's all about me, I'm angry, you know, stuff this guy. And so would you, would you say it's a fair assessment that the skilled mind is one that can include these other things while experiencing that state? Exactly right. One's awareness is greater than just oneself. One is aware of other when you were talking there i was just thinking very rudimentary metaphor here it's like having a coloring in book and you've just got the outlines but then it's taking all these other things and actually coloring in the picture is actually making like the full picture is truly representative of of existence and it's not just the the line drawing beforehand sort of thing that's pretty good i'm still playing that line over one's awareness is greater than just one self-awareness just one self-awareness that includes other awareness and their responses and their views and their feelings and their sentiments it would be quite a high emotional intelligence if we were to put it in more like scientific language yes yes that would be quite good is there anything else you want to keep explaining about everything arising from external conditions that's right well we can look at the physical world and if we think for a moment at this very moment there's gravity acting upon us yes and there's In the organic world, there's the forces of cohesion and adhesion of molecules and fluids, whether it's in our body or in the rain or the sap in the trees. And the moisture in the air is determined by conditions of temperature and wind and air pressure. So all these conditions are all flowing together and interacting with each other at every moment, and they're changing. And our our journey in life is to appreciate this phenomenon more and more deeply so that it really transforms us completely, not just in a cognitive sense, but in a wholly emotional sense. How would you describe 
the current state of how people don't have this principle? We are subject to suffering when we don't have that awareness. And when we suffer, whether it's in a very mild way, just a bit of irritation or a bit grumpy or just a bit dissatisfied with the world because the election didn't go our way or because we didn't get the tickets to that show or if it's something more severe like a physical illness or a mental illness or a grief, yeah, we suffer in some way and it's inevitable in a human life. But it's the way we respond to the suffering and seeing the conditions that bring it about helps us to wisdom. So if we learn to appreciate the conditions or observe and see the conditions that bring about the whole situation, whether it be an unpleasant situation or not, that helps us process it. It does. And, and lessens suffering. Exactly right. Now I'm going to show some Buddhist knowledge that I might know. Definition of suffering is, and this is definitely a paraphrase, <laughs> is not accepting the situation as how it is. Suffering comes when I wish a situation to be different. Exactly So right. I'm suffering because I might have wished that Labor win that election. Yes. And because I want the outcome to be different, I'm suffering. Correct. Whereas, that, is, that is certainly one form of suffering. Okay. At the base, yep. all forms of suffering are about that. If I'm in pain, I have a great wish not to be in pain. Mm -hmm. And look, you know, we are pragmatic here. If there's something we can do to relieve pain, we do it. Yes. But some pain is just simply unavoidable. Like, you know, the pain of grief of the passing of maybe your parents, it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. But with that knowledge and wisdom of conditionality and with the emotional equanimity that that helps bring, we're able to accept that's the way it must be. It can't be any, any other way. How is this idea experienced or practiced then in your life and in your community, for example? Yes, yeah. yes. Very good question. Well, I think the examples we've just spoken about are very helpful, that things are happening all the time to us and we, well, we can just take a step back and look at all the conditions that have brought this about. Let's take, for instance, there's, we see some homeless people in Brunswick and we think, what is bringing this about? We might inquire to find out what, what, uh, what's going on. Uh, maybe some public housing's been closed. Maybe there's been other uh, concerns or issues. And then we might think, how can we help those people? What can we do to actually improve the situation? And then we'll, we'll, we'll go on that journey. So just looking into the conditions and seeing what we can effectively change. And there are some things which are simply unchangeable. When we talk about physical aspects, you know, gravity, wind, weather, and so on, maybe there's some aspects of climate change we can. We can be active on, and there's obviously quite a division in society about those things. But this is still the principle of conditionality. Probably coming back to where we started earlier on was in terms of our mental states and emotions and whether they're skillful and helping to bring ourselves another joy or whether they're unskillful and bring to ourselves and others suffering. Well, this is what's called the law of karma, which is one manifestation of this conditional principle. So if I feel that I'm in unskillful mental emotional states, I'm either feeling selfishly greedy or um, overly possessive or I'm feeling ill will um, or I'm just not caring about people around me, uh, I will start to realize, well, this is bringing suffering and that will have suffering for me and for others. That is the karmic principle happening. So I can decide to try and change my mental states. What can I do to make myself less angry or less upset or less greedy and find some stillness and generosity? What can I do to cultivate that? That's part of the teachings of the Buddha. And I'll start to enact those teachings 
which will help change my mental state and make me a, a kinder, wiser person. What would be some of those practical steps? I would say that the majority of people listening would equate a lot of um, Buddhism to meditation, for example. Yeah, that is certainly one very, very important method in the Buddhist tradition is meditation. So we teach meditations here as, we, as is taught around the Buddhist world where we practice or try to cultivate unconditional loving-kindness where we just settle down, sit down comfortably and become aware of our body and our mind and our emotions and then think about goodwill, goodwill that is unconditional, not dependent on whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you're tall or you're short or you're fat or you're thin, but just goodwill without discrimination or condition and just wish that for you and wish for your joy. So you're saying you can, this is a practice that can be trained. So if someone is generally rather unempathetic or doesn't have a capacity to look at someone with love and they're generally like, look at that idiot driving slow, like, man, screw that guy. You're, you're saying that that is simply a lack of practice. Like you, could, you can practice to look at somebody because some people, I guess, might have a greater capacity to do that than not. There's some very empathetic people, I guess, maybe genetically or upbringing. They just became that way. But then you're, anybody can just practice it and grow our own human capacity to love other people and accept yes, other people. Yes, I mean, whilst you, you indicate there is a, or you imply there is a spectrum of people with capacities to do this, that is true. But really, in my experience, most people at some time can make that move to change if they feel dissatisfied with their life or their mental states. And they can, if they have that determination, what can I do to change myself? We can start with this loving-kindness meditation. And we start with number one in the first stage. We look to ourselves and make sure we are kind towards oneself without conditions. And a lot of people in our society have difficulty there. They're not happy with themselves. It's sounding to me very aligned with these uh, principles that are underlying like psychology and counselling and things where people, if, if someone's got a, you know, if someone's got a struggling relationship, they'll go to a counsellor and the person will think, oh, I just want to complain about this other person. But they end up talking about themselves and actually they find out they're projecting their fear and anxiety on that relationship. It's sounding like very similar to that. Well, Would you? I think there are some points where uh, modern psychology and the Buddhist tradition uh, have a similar starting point. Because a person is going to a counsellor because they're unhappy. They're dissatisfied. There's something they want to change. And that might be, if you like, at a psychological and emotional level. And if they can make a change that brings them to a certain point where they feel happier and able to effect a better relationship with their spouse or their partner, they might think, well, game done, finished, we're good now, see you later. But the Buddhist tradition wants to go all the way. It wants to go beyond the conditions to the experience of the unconditioned like the Buddha. So it's even beyond psychology. It's when you say experience as in our human experience. Yes, so that one has this deep and profound experience as exemplified by the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, where there was a freedom from any form of ill will, a freedom from ignorance, and a freedom from all forms of greed and craving. You can imagine that freedom, that your mind is just not hampered or hindered by any of those emotions, and there was only goodwill and wisdom. That's the state described as enlightenment. Correct often said that the activity of wisdom is compassion 
I think a lot of Western society likes to define and and have like a set of goalposts and once you've made it to that point there, then like you're in or you're whatever. Is there, I'd like to get a sense from you, is this, like I'd, I'm personally of the opinion that a lot of these things are far more ambiguous than that and that there may not actually be points that you can, you know, stick a flag in the ground and say I'm enlightened now, for example, would, is that is that something that the the Buddhist tradition would teach um, mm. in through the practice? That's a very interesting point. Uh, there's often the question of you know how attained is someone in their journey and in their path, and the Buddha said that it takes a long time to know somebody's attainment. You have to know them very well in all sorts of circumstances. How deep is their equanimity? Do they lose their cool when somebody steps on the toe or pushes in their in, into the queue, or yeah, do they go to pieces when they lose their superannuation? Yeah, just how much equanimity do you really have? So the Buddha encouraged people not to worry too much about the attainment of this, that, or the other person, but just observe what is skillful in their thoughts, their, their speech, and their actions, and what can we learn from them, and uh, how can we emulate the best in them. That was essentially his teaching. And is the underlying principle that everybody has this capacity within themselves, just to contrast it a traditional christian view says we innately don't have this and you must and god can will give it to you and and if you have it then it's from god but it's not a human trait there's that separation between human and divine what contrast the buddhist view of the human for me yes the human state is an awareness or a mind that is muddied by this greed or craving, this ignorance. Where does that come from? Is there an explanation of where that... The Buddha was asked that many times, as you can imagine. (laughs) And he said, uh, you will not find the beginning of it. Mm. Because the Buddhist tradition teaches rebirth. Mm -hmm. That uh, until we're enlightened, we are subject to rounds of rebirth in different circumstances, depending on our behavior and our mental and emotional states and our deeds through our lives. That's karmic law again. So that will determine, to a large extent but not completely one situation for the next birth. So a lot of the things that we come into the world with actually may be echoes from the previous life. Are you speaking literally as in I lived another life before that I can't remember and there's echoes of that or are you speaking in a different sense? No, I think it's quite quite okay to to look at it literally. I mean, this is not something which is scientifically verifiable at present. I totally accept that. But I also find it a very good explanation of a lot of things that we see in here, you know, particularly child prodigies or people's inclinations to particular interests or disciplines or whatever very early in life. What drives that? I mean, where does, I mean, our teacher, for, for instance, when he was a young boy, he was walking through the streets of a town in England with his uncle, who was about eight or nine at the time, I believe, and in an antique shop. He just saw a little uh, figure of a cross-legged Buddha and he just grabbed him and he pulled his uncle's hand and said, Uncle, I want to get that, that statue. And he had some pocket money and I think his uncle helped him out. He bought this Buddha statue. Then he saw some incense on a tray. He bought a few sticks of incense. He went home that night. He put the Buddha on his bedside table and lit a stick of incense and just sat in front of it. And he had no exposure to Buddhism at all at that age. And you're saying that's probably an echo of a previous life. life. Why is 
understanding the conditionality of which everything arises. Why is why do you say that is almost the key or the starting point to launch from into, I guess, ultimately enlightenment? That's an excellent question. Well, it's saying that if things arise depend upon conditions, if I want to make a change to myself or the world, I need to look at the conditions that are operating at any one time and seeing what I can change. And I mentioned earlier that example of maybe there's homeless people that we like to try to help. What are the conditions we can affect? Mm. And in myself, if I look at habits or behaviours which uh, I'd like to improve, what are the conditions which I need to bring into place to make a change? So it's an easy, pragmatic step that everyone can take that begins the pathway and the journey of the never-ending journey of stepping towards a state that is less trying to control everything and more of an open acceptance posture. Yes, exactly, but not passive or submissive to things because as we develop emotionally and with this awareness and the equanimity, our love for all things grows and grows and grows. And so when a heart of kindness meets suffering, compassion arises. What did this principle practically for you change when you accepted this principle and it's a practice that's what it's really sounding like what did that change in how you saw the world and interact with the world when i was very young i was very very frustrated with the state of the world whether it was environmental degradation or uh, the treatment of animals or injustices in the world social imbalance and all these things and even at that age reading the papers as I did or listening to the news, I really didn't see political solutions to everything. They can help some things, for sure, but it wasn't helping everything. And yet, I was getting very, very frustrated, and I soon started to learn that that frustration wasn't helping me or anyone else. I had to get beyond this frustration, and that's what this principle of conditionality has helped me with. I don't know how to ask the question, so... Uh, don't take it the wrong way (laughs) is this idea then uh, in ignorance to the problems in the world or is it accepting the problems in the world and knowing that there's just so many other factors that are just beyond control that you know we just need to be okay with it or you can't just not care so do you it doesn't stop you from caring so not at all just just talk about that for a bit yes well as we start to look at the conditional nature of things in in a broad and broader sense as well as the internal dimension we start to uh, have greater love without equanimity and we start to be creative in, in in areas where we can help and we can make a difference so it frees us up to be more effective exactly right exactly right right it is liberating we might have already danced around it a little bit but can you apply that practically here and now there's probably many people listening just very close to after the election they said this was the election of climate change uh this just in nobody cares because the parties that really pushed and saying we're going to put Australia forward in solving climate change, I'm sure a lot of people listening are frustrated. I myself am like devastated because I think it's important. I think we should be stepping in a, a stepping in a direction that where we kind of get humanity back in harmony with how the planet functions. So apply that that principle of acceptance, and how does it heighten? caring for you personally in this in this specific situation of let's face it facing if scientists are correct 10 years to do something serious to solve this problem and the reality that now that 10 became six 
probably the greatest thing, this is my interpretation, but I do not think there's a, a deep enough awareness through enough of our population to appreciate the implications of environmental degradation along with the climate change situation. And why isn't that happening? Uh, maybe because people aren't very well educated on the area and they don't quite understand how interconnected the whole biosphere is, that we are the environment. We're not, you know, we are interacting with the environment. We're breathing air and oxygen and excreting CO2. We're taking in water and we're excreting. We're eating food and each item of food we eat has a whole history in the biosphere and the use of energy and so on. And so there are many, many implications. So personally, I'm saying, well, let me try to make my bit. I'll take the step of being vegan to reduce the, you know, besides the cruelty to animals, but also the impact on the carbon dioxide from all the animal agriculture, which is liberated in the methane gas and the transport and refrigeration of meat and so on. I've just decided not to have children to, to reduce the impact and consumption of energy on the world. And there are other reasons. That was just one of them. And uh, I try to use my bicycle as much as possible and walk and use public transport and minimise my car use. I'm also trying to minimise my flying as well. So that's personal. But in conversations with people, and particularly in a natural and authentic conversation between two people who are listening to each other, sometimes people think, yeah, that's right, that makes sense. And people will start to move towards a more creative and proactive position rather than me pointing the figure and banging the table about what they should be doing and not doing. It's interesting that you mentioned the lack of awareness within the population because that's, that's obviously evident given the hard data of the electoral outcome. And I'm wondering, I'm just connecting a dot that to your central idea. Could you almost map the failure of people to understand the implication of climate change to the general population's inability to accept the very principle you're talking about or they're not awareness of the conditionality of all things if people were more aware of connected to the conditionality in the little ways of their life how things externally impact them how things internally impact them you've got that grows into the community the climate and ultimately the planet the biosphere it's this central idea that seems to be at the heart of everything which i guess is why you chose it that's right. <laughs> wow that's a good idea i like this idea okay and i think the other thing one should say is that there are also other conditions that are applying which affect this awareness or this readiness to be aware of what's happening in the world environmentally uh, and that might be that one is very comfortable pursuing one's pleasures and when we look at our lifestyle and it's extremely affluent in australia i think each individual consumes about seven times the resources of anyone in the less developed world it's quite quite remarkable and we've got in this habitual lifestyle of enjoyment and uh i think these things do need to be and people don't want to give it up this this is sounding both cam and i had a very christian protestant upbringing and this that very thing you're talking about the comforts limiting our sight sounds very much like the story of the rich young ruler coming to jesus saying i've done everything what now and he says well give up everything because mm. that's the barrier mm. to the kingdom mm. Mm. Uh, many people might interpret that to heaven but it, i'm seeing a very strong parallel with what you're saying is that comfort and is is the limitation to the connectedness to observing the connectedness of yes. everything. Yes, when our desires for certain pleasures become so strong, we don't see things clearly. 
we only see what we desire. We are trying to broaden our sight and our awareness to have a wider field of vision and saying, yes, I see that as a pleasure, but there is a consequence and a cost of more and more of us doing this, that and the other in planes and with the things we consume and buy. I am not a neuroscientist, but all my understanding of the amygdala and all those sorts of parts of the brain where it's like that, you know, the reptile brain, the lizard brain idea of the base instinct. Yes, is yes. to serve the self and, and that yes, sort of thing. Yes, yeah. they are survival basics. But if they become amplified and become exclusive of higher mental states and higher mental functions, which include the emotions, then we remain very limited and we really stay in more of our, if you like, our animal world, which is eating, drinking, fornicating, sleeping and, and uh, excreting. That's the animal realm, which runs on instinct. But if we can actually increase our awareness, increase our thinking, reflection, meditation, thinking about the consequences of our thoughts, our speech and our actions, and we might decide to modify some behaviours for the benefit of oneself and others. What conditions, and you just outlined comfort as being one, are there any other societal stories or conditions that you think are unique to Australia, or just, you know, they could be other places as well, but are present in Australia that make it difficult to see the conditionality of all things and that connectedness you're talking about is it consumerism i think that's a major one is that one of the biggest ones it's it's a major one because we are taught and we learn and we both unconsciously and consciously to desire objects and experiences of a particular nature and they are valued so they become a value in our society yeah whether it might be the overseas trip or a certain way of dressing or a particular lifestyle or more money yeah, yeah that's right the much prestige more yeah, material prestige fame celebrity these sorts of things are markedly amplified in our society is that why you think the west stereotypically more capitalist do you think that has any correlation with the lack of prevalence of eastern religions yes i mean acknowledging that in recent centuries particularly the last century there's been a great deal more penetration of eastern religion into the West True. because of travel mm-hmm. and uh, trade and, and all these other things. <laughs> yeah, and, and hippies, <laughs> the old hippie trail, that's yeah. right, the kangaroo trail. So I think that is a point. But there were a few eruptions in consciousness, I think, in Western civilization, particularly in the 60s. Well, let's go back to the first one I mentioned, was the Freudian revolution. Do you uh, think that came from science? Well, it was a lot of reflection from Freud and, of course, others. Uh, who were looking at Greek myths and asking, what are they telling us? Why are they so popular? Mm-hmm. What are they echoing? What are they resonating with in our lives? Because people would look at these Greek myths and in our very postmodern or post-enlightenment way of looking at it go, well, that's clearly not literally true. Ignore it. Whereas these guys, you were, we're saying, saying... What are they telling us about ourselves? They're telling us something about the mind. I'm saying it's a, it's a deep, it's a truth that isn't a literal truth of a historical truth. Correct. It's a Correct. truth of humanity. Because these yes. stories, when you're, if you're a historian, they're reoccurring all of the time and they're asking why are they recurring. Exactly right. Then in the 60s came, if you like, the hippie revolution where there were this combination of 
influx of Eastern traditions. There was the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Transcendental Meditation. The Beatles and the Beach Boys were taking up. We had the psychedelic drugs and the mind-altering stuff, opening people's experience to something way beyond their usual pedestrian day-to-day experience. So those psychedelic drugs, you think they gave somewhat, gave people a subjective experience that indicated or, op- or changed the perspective somehow? Yes, that was certainly a lot of people's experience. Yeah, of course, it wasn't always happy or pleasurable for everybody, mm. but for some people they had you know, profound experiences and they thought, well, the mind is capable of a lot more than what I'm just getting day to day, getting up and working nine to five and going to bed at night. And uh, I know a lot of people have come to meditation and to Eastern traditions because they've had experiences of a deep, profound or remarkable nature. And they thought, well, what can I do with the mind? Maybe I don't want to keep taking drugs for the rest of my life. And of course, having a hit with, with intoxicants like psychedelic drugs or any other drug, I guess for that matter, is a very temporary experience. And it has its risks, of course. But are you going to do that to try and change yourself? When we've got this ancient tradition from the Buddha, which has stood for two and a half thousand years, of a remarkable discipline that, you know, its very antiquity is a testament to its veracity. What do you think the average person generally misunderstands about Buddhism? So often people associate Buddhism with someone in a robe. Mm -hmm. A monk. A monk. (laughs) That's right. And really you are not wearing a robe for our I'm listeners not, no, out there. No, no, that's right. <laughs> this is looking at, it might present a view or a percept that the serious Buddhists are people who get or go into a monastic existence, shave their head, wear a robe and meditate and have this really disciplined life. That's not the only view of, of practice. And if we go back to the Buddha, he had many lay, lay practitioners and disciples, some of whom became enlightened in their lives, living at home, helping their folks, or raising their family because they were able to practice deeply within any context that path of ethics, meditation and wisdom until the awakening occurred. So that's why in this particular order uh, our founder took the approach, well I don't think the robe's really all that a good thing. He actually found quite a a few problems with it when he came from India in the 60s in a robe to London it actually became a barrier for a lot of people and people would project things onto him mm. thinking he must be this or he must be that mm. and he must do this and he must do that and really he wasn't being seen as a human being sounds like he needed to come on this podcast then <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that would be one i think that um, buddhism doesn't just mean you have to wear a robe and go to a monastery the practice of the, the buddha's teaching yeah that seems like it's an exclusive thing they go oh buddhism i'm not from china i'm not from the east uh, yeah, or it's culturally defined and ethnically defined that's another misunderstanding if people see it that way yeah i can't do this because i'm not from the east uh, well that's not true when you from your buddhist perspective look at other religions like christianity or islam as present in australia what is your take on how helpful or unhelpful the narratives within those traditions are? How, how do you generally view them? Another good question and a big one. I think it's good when we look at a spiritual tradition to divide what is the essence, the spiritual essence of the tradition and what is the institution that has grown around it, mm-hmm. such as a church or religious order. You know, we talk about the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. and the, So these are the institutions that are grown around uh, a spiritual essence and essential teachings 
uh, and examples of their founder, Jesus Christ in the case of Christianity, or uh, the prophet in, in the case of Islam. And of course in Islam you've got many schools, you've got you know, one law and another law, and you've got the mm. Sufis, the mystics, and it so it rarely goes on. can be defined to exactly the right. simple titles of Christianity and Islam. That's right, it gets very big and broad. So the way I approach it is, what do I see in any individual's practice which I believe is skillful and beneficial? So if that person is kind, if they are compassionate, if they're generous, if they're not dedicated to a life of relentless acquisition and materialism and consumerism, if they are, uh, they've found peace within themselves, I'm thinking whatever they're doing is working. Yeah, yeah. so it's not a case of an exclusivity that you see that, that the Buddha has, but you see that there's, if it's true, it's true, it's true. Like wherever you find the truth, however you find it, there is manifestations in in one's life they can come to similar points of of love and compassion and empathy towards other people certainly for a good good part of the journey we can see a lot of similarities in the way an individual can develop with one tradition or another and if those qualities that i mentioned are evident in a person well i'd say whatever they're doing is effective and i wouldn't say don't do that <laughs> yeah and if a person has a very deep faith in the God or their creator God or, or the prophet and they believe that all things come through that, but it is guiding a wise and kindly and compassionate life, I've not got an argument with it. Doctrinally, we could have a, a discussion about it, but at the end of the day, if that person is growing, developing in the senses that what I just mentioned, I don't think I've got, not got an argument yeah. with it. I think we should really flag to your um, distinction between the organisational structure, and I think that that's a really important thing. So it we is. should just wave a little flag there. Yes, <laughs> I think it is because these become a life of their own. Where suddenly everyone's trying to keep the structure up and keep the the building alive, and all the rules and regulations that are around that to keep it alive. But they might have forgotten the spiritual essence on which it was originally built. What What do you think the impact of the stereotype of Christianity today being largely positive, largely negative, or what aspects do you think might be helpful or unhelpful? I've certainly read and heard and seen to some extent that a lot of attendance at the uh, traditional and conventional Christian churches are uh, diminishing and their patronage is more of the older generation. So the question is, where are the young people? A lot of them do echo what I experienced when I was young, there was no methodology. No methodology. What do we do? Application, no practice. No practice. Mm, we just I, have to mm. believe. So if we come to the Buddhist tradition, we may want to approach it from meditation. Let's sit down. You need, don't need any belief, any conviction, any ideas, just an own re, your own receptivity to your experience. So let's just sit down, make yourself comfortable and concentrate on the breath for a while and see what experiences has with our mind, with just quietening the mind with concentration on the breath. And if we find that makes us calmer and clearer of mind and more aware of oneself and others in the world, then that's a winner. Let's do more of it. And then we do the loving kindness meditation. And I accept there will be variations of you know, loving kindness and, and often similar things of compassion in other traditions. It's not unique to Buddhism. But what I think is the strength of this particular tradition is these practical methods of developing awareness and kindness and wisdom. Because stereotypically, Christianity would look at Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam and say, 
that won't save you. You've got to be a Christian. It's very uh, evangelical about it and very dualist. It's, it's very, this is the right tradition. And, f- and within the Christian tradition, and I bring this up all the time because it's a very fun fact, within the Protestant or the Christian tradition, you've got 33,000 different Christian denominations, many of whom saying it isn't that Christian denomination, it's our one, and then that'll break off another one. There's so many of them, and that's generally, and that's definitely, like Cam and I have talked about this all the time, that doesn't reflect, obviously, the nuances within Christianity. It's not no. everybody, but stereotypically, no. that would be one yes, thing. Yes. Does Buddhism have a similar exclusionary and evangelical way of doing it or what what how does buddhism see other religions yes well again that's a big question i couldn't speak for every buddhist but your buddhist <laughs> tradition and your perspective so look if we look back at the history of buddhism that's been a subject to institutionalization as much as any christian or mm. or any other tradition and this is one of the things we really have to watch out for in fact the buddha predicted it he actually spoke about one of the great hindrances to the mind and to liberation is to mistake the method, the means for the ends. So we start worshipping the way we set up the Buddha shrine, the way we meditate and the way we sit, thinking that's the important thing. If we get that right, then I've made it. No, it's the transformation of the mind. This is what, what goes on. And so he said, if there's an over-dependence on rites and rituals as an ends in themselves... That's a mistake and a hindrance. And so that, of course, is what an institution, if it becomes bigger than the essence of the tradition, that is exactly the very fault that, uh, that will be present. And uh, so we have to watch out for that. And our own tradition has to watch out for that. And it's about being aware of it. And uh, Conditional awareness. Exactly right. Yes, yes. It does truly solve everything. I was clickbaiting the title before, like, oh, conditional awareness solves, like, can explain everything. No, guys, it really actually can. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end that one. Thank you so much for talking to us. I feel like I've got a new language to describe something that, you know, you, you, you're aware of, but it's, it's good to have a new way of describing it and talking about it. So thanks so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it very much in meeting you both. Does the principle of conditional arising, does it truly explain everything? Tell me what you think. What made sense? What didn't make sense? What questions do you have for Siladasa? I might get him back on and ask him some questions. You can email me your questions, ideasdigest at gmail.com. Or you can DM me on Instagram at ideasdigest. If you made it to the end of this podcast and you're still listening right now, You've already given me an hour of your time, so why not two minutes more? Head over to Apple Podcasts, give me a five-star review, and write some kind words. Conrad, he's so handsome. What a great interviewer he is. Whatever. Whatever comes to your mind. That's it from me. I'll catch you next time.